Defend your design. Let's face it, your design work is going to be evaluated by neophytes. Whether you work as part of an in-house team or in an agency, your best work is going to be judged by company executives who've never spent a day studying design, never done any UX research, they don't even own a box of crayons. The best of them will defer to your judgment until they don't. But these are the neophytes who write checks. They've not earned their red pen, but they have paid for it. Does it pay to stand as the Captain America for their prospects and customers? Or is it smarter to give them what they want? Do data-driven designers get fired more often than designers with a good story? I've been in many meetings where our data clearly contradicts the decisions of a designer. I'm gonna tell you the truth, we usually lose. That's right, the whims of the designer override the science-driven, lab coat-wearing data of a conversion scientist. But I'll also say this, most designers welcome the data. So the scenario is actually real. Basically, it boils down to the culture of the business. Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to get the results their business needs. It delivers intended consequences, and I'll teach you how to harness it. It's envelop a craftsman mentality, envelop a, a service mentality. Like you're there to solve problems, and then you're applying that craftsman skill set to it. And from there, find ways to, to cross the aisle. Can data help you defend your designs? In part two of my conversation with designer Tom Niemeyer, we explore this question and some others. Tom says design is really a negotiation. Well, let's see what he means by that. Designers don't have to defend their designs. For the, you know, the highest paid person in the room says he'd like to see it a different way, or if the, the marketing team says we'd like to see it a different way, then the designer makes that change. And I can see how that is sometimes like, you know, they're making a bad choice or you suspect they're making a bad choice, but you just, you can't defend it because, well, it's you against them, your word against them. Suddenly when you've got these, uh, this, this user testing on the front end and when your design is being informed, like in the case of our customers by a, you know, a suite, potentially years of previous AB testing for what works and what doesn't work you're in a, a bit more precarious position because you would not only have the data to defend it, but you have the, the moral high ground and honestly the fiduciary duty to your, your company or to your client to defend that design. Talk a little bit about the thorny path that that might be. And if you have any advice for standing flat footed and saying, this is what the data says. The best answer there is as in life uh, usually goes, not the easy one. Because uh, the best answer is to do that work. And, and again, you add that on to my list of number one things I, I've learned over time. Um, I think a lot of folks, like we, we get a lot of calls and I see as the conversion scientists get a lot of calls because somebody's looking for a lightning rod answer for, hey, you understand the data, therefore you understand X. That's no different than somebody saying you're a designer because you're talented. <laughs> Whereas talent to most people that have been there is probably the accumulation of years at work. I, you know, when I've run small design teams, I've told them like, 
do that thing that you're up till three in the morning. I, I personally have sat up till four in the morning looking at every Photoshop filter because I wanted to figure that out. You know, there's a reason why I'm built that way. Mm-hmm. Um, just like data scientists look at a spreadsheet and they see that story to your point, the instincts come out, they, they get a sense. Now, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. Eventually they do an analysis. So it's that analysis, it's that work. It's a little bit like somebody calling up a designer and saying, hey, tell me why I need you to do this over my cousin who can do it for 500. And I used to tell people like, well, go have your cousin do that. And when you come back, <laughs> my, my rate might be a little bit higher, but eventually you see that there is, there is true work involved. And so I think, you know, if you're probably talking to a lot of other designers, people that have been doing it for a while, there is workshops. I promise there'll be some, some South by Southwest uh, panels coming up. There always are on sort of how you do that, how you defend your design. How do you figure out how to be persuasive rather than demanding? Um, and even if you're completely right to your point, there are still all of these barriers in a room, whether it's by role, by paycheck, um, or often how, how willing you are to pound some fists on a, on a table. Some of your best creative directors, that's probably their best quality is that they can get their idea through. Um, and like I have always said, when I was managing creative directors, that's what I worked on was be persuasive, not demanding. You can be a bull in a China shop just like anybody else. And if you do that, it's going to end. However, probably your client work will suffer. Well, I guess design is really a negotiation. It is not an art. As arty as it is, it's always a negotiation. It's, if nothing else, a negotiation with the capabilities of the platform, negotiation with the marketing team, negotiation with an executive. What the data does is it opens a negotiation with the end customer. And I think I think so many of our agencies have just been trained, brutally, harshly trained to deliver for what will be approved by the marketing team and the executives in the company, you know, designed for their client, not for their client's client, even though that's ultimately not what their clients want. Where I think data is uh, really does have a, a significant impact, and it is in that area. It's like defending yourself against helicopter executives. And I think that an executive comes in and, and feels like they need to insert their opinion um, when they feel like there is, there's a vacuum of, of information. In other words, they weren't part of the process. They don't understand the decisions that went into it. They don't have the experience that the designer has. And so they feel a, a void that they need to be in. If we can plug that void with some research and some data, the best executives are going to go, well, let's go with the data. I've certainly seen that work. I mean, to me, what I hear you saying, it's all about trust, right? And, and there is a gap. Data helps close that gap because it gives you something objective. Because a lot of times what happens is design firms either incumbent or they were selected based off of what their portfolio, a lot of its relationships, especially at agency level, you know, it's going to be, do you have the credibility? So how did you brand yourself? It's huge with awards. Obviously that's why awards are so big for designers and agencies because that's a huge piece of credibility. And so from there, it's, it's basically, what have you done in the past that makes me believe that you can solve the problem that we have in front of us now? And then at some varying degree of what my ability is to show you, especially at the agency level, my ability to convince you that I'm right. <laughs> so data essentially is what can close that gap. It's, I think, why, if you really break down the psychology of it, I believe it's probably why people really care because they're just looking for something that can definitively help them make the right decision uh, and then be able to articulate why they've made such decision. Everybody talks about data and design or creative like they are these walled off camps. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in, in so many regards, can totally understand how that they are. But what is in, 
interesting moving forward in this world is is bringing those together so and i think every one of my answers to one of the questions you've asked me or the problem is it's mostly about communication mindset perspective understanding that and then from there it is how do we be more resourceful well and this this point this concept of uh, data providing trust and trust being you know that missing piece really is resonating with me um because trust is hard it's it's uh, it's hard to earn trust, um, especially when you're selling something to someone who hasn't seen the process. And that's why we love to, so we have this magical meeting after we've done our analysis where we, we actually pull the reports, we show the heat map reports and the scroll map reports so the people in the room get what's going on. And it can be really powerful. We'll even play um, a few um, session recordings so they can see the frustration of some of their visitors. And it's it's very visceral. It does give them some vision into the process without them actually after being, after being, uh, having to be a part of it. But uh, I, I think that is the gem of this for me is that the data can, can build trust. And I love the thought that data is part of the beauty. But the most interesting thing to me is in business, we tend to be a little bit careful. And I think we suffer from this with our clients because we're always moving forward. But that crazy idea that grabs you on Friday afternoon, that you're like, oh, this is this is a little out there, but I bet this would be really interesting. That could potentially change things. Uh, it's not safe. And then, of course, on Monday, you're like, there's just no way I'm going to sell this. Talk a little bit about how data has given you more freedom to maybe try some things you otherwise wouldn't be brave enough to. Yeah, so that's a an interesting one, and I I particularly love because it it gets into a realm that I I thrive in, which is crazy ideas, <laughs> or, or better to that point, testing sort of radical concepts. Right, I've seen a couple of examples whereby now, once you're sort of in the cadence with a customer, you're sort of getting regular data, you're at least part of those discussions. You've seen how a few tests go inevitably those big ideas come about either from you or from somebody else or or maybe even that top level executive it's not uncommon for people to come on a call and say i have this big idea our customers do have big ideas. yeah and actually we want them to be doing that that's where it kind of gets fun because it becomes this ground of hey i we can have a little bit of that freedom we can play around and how do we learn and test so i think a lot of the times this is a little bit like mobile first design what that's really translated into is you've got to solve the whole thing at least conceptually right up front and then you've got to back down how you're going to get there <laughs> so uh, you know one, it's a little bit lamer of a big idea but these pdp redesigns you know we, we, we do a good amount of take a look at my product page which is my top converting page on my site and tell me how we get there and the pdp is a pretty straightforward page it's like Show them the product, show them the price, give them a few points, maybe some some reviews. I mean, how can a PDP be hard? Why would you, why would you innovate around something so basic on an e-commerce site? But it turns out because for some seemingly sometimes the most innocuous of changes can have a, a high yield, <laughs> and it is it is crazy. And then it's crazy, like I said earlier, how much that can differ from a consumer base to a consumer base, and even beyond sort of. Again, top of mind things like, is this a, a hard good, a soft good, a high consideration or a low consideration product? Is the sales cycle on this six months or three days? You know, those types of things. But so I, I think 
you know, how we handle a lot of that is we begin first visualizing that. So that's kind of the new idea. We have some data that has raised to this question. So now that we can in, infuse some design, we can actually visualize what some of these things look like. So rather than trying this on your site, we can have that discussion. We can help you navigate the organization or the psychology or both, you know, of who your stakeholders are to go get something big like this done. We can actually, one of the things I love about here too, is we can be creative in what the test strategy is, how we go about that. It's not this finite linear ask this question, ask that one. It's, well, what if we were to put this out? That's one of those, one of those newer notions that we've talked about is that sort of radical concept testing rather than it's sort of the, the, the backwards notion of let's put something big out there rather than call it an MVP or something. Let's try these two disparate concepts. We're getting ready to do that with a customer who wants to try two different purchase flows. And so we're going to put out that test. We're going to do some user testing first and some, some focus grouping before we, so we can actually nail down those two disparate processes, but then intentionally go out with, you know, you could, we're not doing this here, but you could limit the traffic if you have enough in order to get there. Right. So that you're minimizing risk. And that's really what it is, is what is the organization's appetite for risk? And the thing I'd add again, as another piece of learning is not just their appetite for risk, but their perception of the risk around testing. Because I do think sometimes we'll come out and, and we always say this, if you're, if you're really truly trying new ideas, if you're really truly pushing it, you know, not everything's gonna win. So once, once an organization becomes comfortable with risk, almost immediately snap into reducing that risk. So we are now, we now realize that taking risks works in our business. How do we minimize the risk? And so to an extent, the, the, the process we go through allows them to take more risks while reducing the potential cost, the potential downside. So they're okay with some volatility, but they want it boxed into you know, a, certain, a certain lane. And that's really what we do. And I think most of our clients already come to us with a certain level of, all right, we get better and we beat our competition when we take risks. I see sometimes you, sometimes you have to remind them, overall, we've helped you gain 10%. And on that test, we might have gone down 3%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, and what's important to note there, even on that, that freedom standpoint, is even when you lose, you learn. That's one of the beauties of, of this is even when we lose, we learn. We know that this didn't work here over uh, the lifespan of a client. That can be extremely helpful to the point of, and I've seen this, I don't know how many times in these mini cycles work of, well, why don't we try this? We did try that. And here's how that resulted, actually. We've, if you look back through the question. test roadmap or the, you know, any of those things. In the last few minutes that we've got, um, so I think that most designers are like you, and I might be stereotyping here. Uh, they tend to be self-taught. So where would a where would a designer who maybe is not familiar with these tools? We're talking about you know usability tests, usability hub, Helio. Um, I'm going to put a graphic on in the show notes here that shows you the tools that we use. They're not hard to use. They're not that expensive. Uh, what advice do you give for them for kind of what they do first? Maybe add a little bit of data to what they're doing on their next project. This is a great question. I mean, I have, honestly, there are a lot of good resources out there um, on Udemy. Obviously, Google offers a lot as far as training uh, certifications. Adobe offers a lot, um, a surprising amount. In fact, they've gotten better and better. I used to not <laughs> care for them too much. Do they need to be certified or they just need to figure out how to use they these do, tools? You do not need to be certified. Nobody's going to ask you that. I 
like to do certain aspects of that just so I feel like I've kind of got that completion box. As I get older, I just take the craftsmanship of what I do more seriously. Whereas earlier on in my career, it was, I have this drive to do this. I like this. It seems to be working out well for me career wise. But I, I, I think one, you have to embrace that mentality of always be learning really from a technical perspective. But I, I really think, you know, I've been lucky enough to be thrown into a lot of rooms where I, like I said, continually learn that's been part of the process of being here. And because I've been good at that and had that mentality, it's kind of what's drawn me along on sort of the side lane of the creative field, always, always, you know, having one foot into a data pool or, a, you know, a video pool or an implementation pool or something like that, because it was always intriguing to me to really embrace those worlds. That's where all of the interesting stuff comes out. Imagine that going back to even some of these larger PDP redesigns, you know, to bring that all the way home. It's like, look at what we put up at the end of an audit for a PDP redesign. And then let's look at that desired path. So we've now tested for six months. And what's the differences between what we designed and we said we would do, even when we were data informed from the audit, it's envelop a craftsman mentality envelop a, a service mentality like you're there to solve problems and then you're applying that craftsman skill set to it and from there find ways to, to cross the aisle right in this particular area we're talking about data and many others we're talking about business in fact data can be a bridge to business but if you're designing something you're inevitably designing it to sell something more to gain more leads you're selling it uh, you're designing it for business purposes you're trying to connect somebody else to somebody else and do so in the most effective manner and when you look at it that way uh you know it removes the ego piece of that you know i think when i'm coming up with treatments for experiments it's those times when i'm it's a coin toss like should we make this large should we make it small should it be left right orientation or right left orientation with the, the text and the the image you know whatever it is Whenever I default to, oh, I'll just show these two mock-ups to the customer and let them choose, that's when I've got to remind myself, say, no, wait a minute, I'm going to show them the mock-ups and I'm going to show some data that demonstrates mm -hmm. which of these is most likely to be the right choice. Mm -hmm. And eventually you get to the point where you don't show them the two mock-ups, you simply present the one. Um, I always tell my audiences, if when the, when the designer comes to you, or the agency comes to you and says, here's three mock-ups, pick one, their answer should be no, go get some data and tell me which one of these is going to be most effective. The potential upside is that they're, you know, the designer will do two safe ones and one designy one like out there. And uh, there's a very good chance that and the out there one never gets picked, but that one might be the one. And with some data, you know, that designer could fundamentally change the, the, the financial assets, the financial future of, of these businesses. Anything else you want to tell the audience before we go? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, I, I think I've demonstrated I could sit here and talk about this all day long, um, even as you throw out that last piece, you know, about the strategy. It, that's one of the things that's changed for me is like what my strategy in a presentation, and it was a three-fork strategy uh, versus now I work towards are there three compelling pieces of data or insight directionally or otherwise here that we can – make compelling to them, you know, for what it's worth of what it used to be was exactly, I, it was that listening piece for me. My, I wanted to go in, I want to show at least three, you know, or get down to three. And it was always going to be, I'm going to show them what they asked for. So I got a brief or they, I had a conversation. I'm going to show them that I can, I heard them. 
and this is exactly what you asked for, then I'm going to show them, and this would always be my one, the recommendation, this is what you should do. Uh, and then I'm going to show them one that is batshit crazy. That is <laughs> the, maybe that design side. But I'm going to show them that I think this way, I think this broadly, I'm going to push it a little bit, a little bit fun for me, but also I want them to know that I think that way in case they have that project coming down the pipe or whatever. And to your point, sometimes that could be the <laughs> right thing to do. And that strategy also on the other side often would end up being, ah, uh, crap, they picked the one that I didn't want them to pick. <laughs> that was exactly what they asked for. When you get back from the kitchen. Normally, I call this section when you get back to the office. But at the time of this recording, most of us are not working from the office. We'd like to hear from you. What's your situation? How is the coronavirus and its financial fallout impacting your company, your work, and your customers? All you have to do is shoot us an email, podcast at conversionsciences.com. I know it's long, but it's spelled just like you think. We'll discuss your input on another episode. One more time, that's podcast at conversionsciences.com. Now go science something.